What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on Earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Welcome to the Time of Monsters podcast. The war in Ukraine uh, continues, and there's much discussion now uh, that it's a war of attrition, but a particularly brutal one, uh, as war of attrition tend to be. Both sides seem to be losing several hundred soldiers a day, and it's unclear how long that will continue. And on the Russian side, there's certainly like a willingness to unleash the full brutality uh, of the Russian military uh, on civilians. You know, amid this uncertain conflict uh, where the battle lines keep going back and forth, uh, the story has kind of receded from public attention. It's very strange that there's a war in the heart of Europe that is consuming so many lives uh, that is now relegated to the inside of newspapers rather than the front page. Amid that, there's uh, sort of concerns as to uh, the American involvement in the war. And one is starting to see uh, a broad coalition of voices from the left to the center and, and including conservatives who are saying that the Biden administration has been sleepwalking through this war, that there is not enough push for negotiations. And this is bad both for the Ukrainians themselves. You know, the longer the war goes on, the more their country, which is where the war is being conducted, is going to be brutalized. Uh, and it's also bad for the world in the United States, that the United States could be sleepwalking into a larger and larger conflict. The voices who are saying this, you know, include Henry Kissinger, the New York Times editorial board, uh, Noam Chomsky, and Christopher Caldwell, who's a very uh, conservative, uh, I would say far-right uh, writer, who has, uh, wrote a column on this in the New York Times. So I, I wanted to, I thought it'd be a good occasion to take up you know, what's happening and where, um, how to think about the war and also some of the debates about the war on the left. Uh, and to do so, I'm very happy to have Matt Duss, who is the foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders. And although he'll be speaking here uh, in his own capacity and not as a spokesperson for the uh, the senator. But uh, Dust is also, I think, one of the foremost foreign policy thinkers on the left. He wrote a column in the uh, New Republic, our rival magazine. <laughs> we went into many of these issues, what I thought was a very thoughtful way. So um, Matt, I'm very uh, happy to have you. And maybe we can just start with, the, with this issue of the, this complaint that one is hearing, that Biden isn't negotiating enough. What do you think of that? Sure. And I mean, first, thanks very much uh, for having me on, dude. It's great, as always, to chat with you. First, let's recognize, I mean, we are recording this on the 100th day of this war. It is, as, as you said, it is uh, essentially a war of attrition. It's hundreds of, of soldiers on both sides being killed every day. It is it's absolutely devastating. It's brutal. I mean, all the, all the words you can use. Um, we all would love to see this end as soon as possible. Maybe not all. Certainly, I think President Biden would. Certainly, President Zelensky would. But, but yeah, to, to the question you raised, I think we have seen a number of people over the past few weeks, you mentioned a number of them, and from some interesting sec, you know, from, you know, Henry Kissinger and Noam Chomsky don't often agree on a great deal, 
for them to come out and say, you know, we need to be willing or the United States should be pushing for, you know, a set of compromises uh, that could end this war or get to a ceasefire. I mean, I understand that. But as I, as I say in the piece, first, I think we should recognize that the Ukrainians offered a, a very serious set of compromises very early uh, in the war, going back, uh, I think it was in, uh, on March 29, um, that I linked to in the piece, that basically address all of Putin's you know, alleged demands, grievances, whatever you want to say, with regard to Ukrainian non-alignment, neutrality, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and Putin obviously has not gone for it. So I guess my response to this claim that, you know, that the U.S. should be pushing harder for a solution is, what's the solution that we should be pushing for that we are not? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the Biden administration and President Biden published an op-ed in the New York Times just, uh, was it yesterday or the day before, laying out, I think, pretty clearly the U.S. position, the goal we're trying to help produce, which is, you know, an independent, sovereign Ukraine. Honestly, I think I understand why the U.S. does not want to be bargaining on behalf of the Ukrainians to end this war. I think it does make sense to for the Ukrainians to be in the lead here. But again, as I made clear in the piece, we are not you know, we should not and are not just outsourcing our policy to the Ukrainians here. We are engaged in this, the United States and the Indian, the people of the United States are implicated in this war by virtue of the pretty considerable military support we are giving to the Ukrainians. So I guess the question I would just come back to is, I, I just haven't, you know, people can talk about here's what a compromise would look like. You give up this piece of Ukraine, that piece of Ukraine, even leaving aside whether it's appropriate for us to be making these concessions on behalf of another country. I just haven't seen any evidence that this would satisfy Putin because it more or less has been offered to him. I think what we know about Putin's own vision and his own goals, even just agreeing to carve off pieces of Ukraine would probably not solve his problem. As he sees it. Yeah, that does get to a sort of crucial issue of like, what is Putin seeing here? And I, th- I think a, one reason why a lot of us were kind of uh, surprised, not, not so much by the invasion, but maybe by the scale of the wars, it's hard to see any sort of rational end that Putin has in this war. Like, and in terms of like, you know, the cost that he's putting into this, like, what is he hoping to achieve? Mm. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, like, it could well be that like Putin has invested so much that he's like kind of like a gambler that has to like keep putting more money into the pot, <laughs> like, yeah. which is like a, a kind of terrifying thought. But to, I mean, you mentioned Biden, he published an op-ed in the New York Times, which is very reasonable, like open to negotiations, not wanting to oust Putin. But I, I think maybe could critics point out that there's been inconsistent messaging that like, mm-hmm. you know, like at other times, yes. Biden has said, well, Putin has to go, that you know, Putin's a war criminal, which is accurate. But like, what does that like, you know, mean right. in terms of American policy? So I mean, like, if one were like making a critique of American policy, like, is there been a consistent voice in there? And if there's, is, if it's been inconsistent, could that be contributing to the war lasting longer? Yeah, I think that is a fair question. I, and yeah, I think there have definitely been some uh, off-script ad-lib moments and some, whether one wants to call them gaffes or whatever, that could be interpreted that way. I think a lot of people point to you know, Secretary of Defense Austin's remarks about the goal being to weaken Russia. I think there are other ways to interpret that. I mean, ultimately, if you, if you are in a war, one of the goals is to weaken the enemy. So that is yeah. certainly a, 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 an understandable and legitimate goal for the Ukrainians. 
Um, and to the extent that the U.S. is assisting the Ukrainians, a U.S. goal as well. But yeah, I mean, I think there's also a question of like how much of this matters to Putin himself. I mean, Putin seems to have made a set of decisions already and interpreted American intentions going back a very, very long time. So it, it, I'm not really convinced that a few ad libs by you know U.S. officials, including the presidents, are really going to determine a great deal about Putin's perceptions. I think. You know, I don't discount that possibility. I think it seems that Putin has made up his mind about what the U.S. and the West have, you know, intend for Russia. But again, figuring that out uh, as just going back to what you were saying, I think is important and it is concerning. I think there are another number of kind of interpretations, you know, looking, you can look at what he has said himself. And I think the last time uh, I was on here with you, we discussed, you know, Putin's speech right on the eve of the invasion, where he laid out a pretty expansive vision for creating a new Russian imperium or whatever term one wants to use, making his case uh, or, you know, stating his view that Ukraine is not a real country and it's just part of Russia. Yeah, but there are other, there are other things we can look at too. And that's, you know, the effort to kind of seize ports along the Black Sea, which has a pretty straightforward, you know, goal in terms of energy exports and, and help helping to um, create more, um, opportunities for Russia to export energy at, at a greater level, which would give them more flexibility in terms of their own economy. And there's also part of it is, I forget where I, I was recently reading a, a really great piece on this, um, but it reminded me, I mean, there's an element too. I mean, as we're thinking through what Putin is trying to achieve, the kind of isolation that Russia has kind of is facing now you know, we've seen it in, in for, for certain elements of the regime, this is not a negative thing. We see this with regard to Iran. We see this with regard to other countries that face massive sanctions. You know, for certain elements of the regime that are always going to eat first, being cut off from the global economy yeah. ultimately is not really that bad for them. It is very bad for their people. But these are not folks who give much of a shit about their own people. So... Yeah, it's, you know, no, that, it's, that, that, that actually doesn't make sense. Although, it, I mean, that itself raises some issues in terms of American strategy and even like stuff that right. you and I might find appealing because right. there is a kind of narrative of, I think people on the left have taken up that, the, you know, like, well, it's the oligarchs. And in Russia, is an oligarchy. It's a very unequal yeah. society yeah. as it's formed in the last like 20 years. But like, it really does seem like, you know, Anatole Levin and others have pointed out that like the oligarchs are the sort of courtiers of the regime, but the actual real hardcore of Putin's strength is this kind of military industrial complex. It's like these right. kind of hard state actors who are like very aligned with specific, you know, military industries and, um, you know, are, are live very well, well, but aren't necessarily the oligarchs. And right. that, yeah, these are the people who seem to be the, you know, the ones who keep Putin in power and, and ha share his, you know, great Russia view. Right. No, no, I, I think that's the key thing is like, it's, you know, as others have, have, have pointed out, I mean, the oligarchs depend on Putin, not the yes. other way around. I mean, he does yes. use them, yeah. you know, to kind of manage his money and move his money around and put his money in places or, or you know, his meeting the regimes. Yeah. Um, but given that he is the top of this regime, it's basically his when he wants them to. But, you know, the kind of theory that, you know, you can put pressure on the oligarchs and that will in turn pressure Putin does not seem to have been borne out. Yeah, no, that's right. And so, I mean, there, there are other reasons to want to like maybe challenge the oligarchs and rein in there. Certainly. It, it's, 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 it's a good thing to do regardless. 
<laughs> that's right yeah but it doesn't seem like it's going to get us to a point of changing putin's actions or putin's hold on power so it does seem like i mean if that's the case then yeah this war of attrition is, is something putin could do for a long time and it actually benefits him this is this is how you know militarized state stays in mm-hmm. power and it's in some ways i mean i mean I, to me the worrying aspect is the idea like are we just is a new cold war something that actually putin like looks forward to, you mm-hmm. know like, actually right. like the, that that's okay by him and what we're you know seeing now is going to be like a, a redivided europe you know along these the, uh, big blocks the russian bloc will be much smaller than it was in, in the cold war but still formidable uh and militarized on both ends it, it's hard to see how one escapes that like it, it seems yeah. like that that's where we're heading towards yeah no and there are certainly elements in our own security and political establishment for whom that is fine uh, yeah. hey, you know, as I've said, and others have said, you know, every country has its hardliners, um, and they all seem to kind of have this tacit agreement to kind of buttress each other with with their policies and and, and their rhetoric. Um, but yeah, and again, that's something I try to get at, at my piece to say, let's, you know, understand that Washington is, you know, the kind of nature of our military industrial complex is to kind of overstate these threats and then cash in on our overreaction uh, mm-hmm. to these threats. So we we really have to be careful about that, but let's like let's do that. But at the same time, try and have, and this is the kind of conversation I was trying to foster with the piece, to have a really you know a reality based conversation about what this threat actually is, what Ukrainians are facing, what we are trying to help them do, um, and if just continuing to supply them with arms to defend their country is a just and reasonable policy, and I think it is. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, it seems like there's a two sort of competing goods that are in tension. One is desire for Ukraine to preserve its sovereignty. I don't think, you know, the baseline has to be that it's wrong to invade another country. I mean, that, that's just like, like yeah. it's a fundamental, like, you know, thing that we do not want in this world. And when it happens, we want it to be punished. And we want the people who are invaded to have some sort of mm-hmm. ability to defend themselves. I mean, that, that there is that. But then there's also this other tension, which is that the it seems like the only way to help the Ukrainians defend themselves is through the, the system of NATO and of like, you know, American military intervention. And that in itself, like, you know, like mm-hmm. it's going to like it looks like it's going to freeze the world into these two giant blocks again. Right. Like it's going to mm-hmm. uh, entrench the the uh, military industrial side on Putin's end and also uh, on the Western end. How does one negotiate between these competing problems if one is, you know, like wary of both the NATO solution, but also right. we, we don't want Russia to be able to gobble up Ukraine, right? Yeah. Right. And I, I think you've laid it out very well. I mean, the, there, are, there are a number of challenges to this discussion that we need to take on at the same time. Um, but yeah, but just coming back to kind of the beginning of this discussion, I think, you know, what we've seen from a lot of folks, including, you know, folks I, I like and respect on, on the left is just this idea that, you know, Biden or the U.S. needs to be doing diplomacy harder and that would produce an outcome that would end the war. And again, I just my question is, what you know, what is that that we're not doing? What is not being offered that Putin would take? Um, because I haven't seen evidence that there is such a thing right now. And if that is the case, I think continuing to do what we're doing while constantly making clear, as Zelensky has constantly been making clear that he is ready to talk right now, today, to end this war um, directly with Putin. But, you know, doing what we're doing and hoping that eventuality comes to pass. But the bottom line is we, you know, 
people talk about off ramps and all that. We are, I think those off ramps are, are being offered. Putin is just not taking. Yeah. Some of the stuff that people point towards is maybe the Minsk Accord, like the, mm-hmm. the idea of a return to that. Like, do you think that that's a, uh, that's just something people are saying or is, is that like a, an option? I mean, I hear a lot of people saying that, but, you know, and, and, and there are people make fair points that both Russia and Ukraine didn't fulfill their obligations under that. But again, I don't I don't I don't see that that solves the problem now based on how 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 Putin has defined his goals. And certainly he would not be the first leader in the history of the world to walk back from very expensive goals. But again, if you look at what Zelensky has offered, what I mentioned earlier, I think that that contains a whole set of concessions that would seem to at least satisfy, you know, what Putin has alleged are his demands. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it does seem like, I I think that's maybe worth spelling out for our listeners because not everyone follows it up, but like, like what exactly is it that Zelensky has offered? Because I think it is, I mean, it does include like territory that Russia had previously like seized in like 2014, right? Like, and it does include recognition of like Russian cultural rights within Ukraine of like Russian language rights. What else is like on the table here? Right. I mean, there's a set of proposals. Um, it's 10 different proposals. Um, one, The first one is Ukraine proclaims neutrality. The second is regard to international security guarantees and those guarantees where they do and do not extend. Specifically, they would not extend to Crimea or, or the Donbass. Yeah. Ukraine would not join military coalitions or host foreign military troops or bases. So, so Ukraine is not going to join NATO? Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's right. You know, again, that was something that Putin brought up a lot. And let's also remember, like, you know, I, we can go into the whole NATO discussion, as I said, as I wrote in my piece, as I've yeah. said elsewhere. You know, I, I'm not one of these folks who discounts the NATO piece. I think there is clear evidence that this was a serious problem for the Russians. It's not something that Putin just made up. But I think for a number of reasons, you know, one of them being the fact that part of Ukraine was occupied by a foreign country meaning Russia, that itself would have prevented Ukraine from joining NATO. (laughs) Because one of the conditions for joining NATO is that you can't have any unresolved border disputes. Mm. Uh, So to the extent that their border was certainly under dispute, that was essentially a veto point that Putin already had over NATO accession. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I I think that's right. So I guess the, the question I keep going back to, though, is like, how long is this like sustainable uh, on the Ukrainian side? Like, yeah. I mean, for me, the major like issue, and it is only for the Ukrainians to decide, but as you said, like, you know, America is implicated in this and will have some say yeah. is like, you know, you have, you know, like a, a war of attrition, but it's being fought in Ukraine. It's not being fought in Russia. Right. And it's Ukrainian like nation that mm-hmm. is brutalized like by yeah. this continued war in that sense, like, you know, like is the status quo, like how is it sustainable? And is it like going to just, is it baked in that it's going to lead to some yeah. sort of like Ukrainian defeat? Because what's so special about hero bread, soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas. These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co. It's like, it will be, even if the, the Ukraine as a nation will be ruined. Yeah. No, I think that's, that is a fair and, and, and disturbing point. I mean, one thing I would add is like, in addition to the U.S. and Ukraine, there's also the European governments, right? Who, yeah. and I think part of the, administ- the Biden administration's approach here is, and has been to the Europeans to say, okay, this is Europe. 
mm-hmm. step up and get engaged. You know, they have, you know, Schultz and Macron before the invasion both played a, a big role in trying to, to, to kind of get to some, um, you know, agreement with Putin. They went over and they had those long meetings at his big long table. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned in the piece, they both came out of those meetings and, you know, spoke to the press and specifically put the NATO issue on the table, making clear that it was under discussion. Now, they did not make specific concessions right there in front of the press. And I, as I think some people have claimed they should have, I don't tend to see that as a realistic way of doing diplomacy. But I do think the point is that these issues were clearly, you know, they were ready to discuss this if it, if it was a possibility of averting this evasion, invasion. But to your point, how, you know, how does this end? How long does this go on? I think, you know, I don't have the answer to that. Everything you say is right. This is a disaster every single day for Ukraine, for the country, for its economy, for the world economy, right? For yeah. the, the impacts with regard to, uh, you know, a, a world already suffering under pandemic and climate uh, change and the of an increasing global food shortage that is impacting the global south more than anywhere else. Um, you know, as, as others have said, you know, Putin is essentially holding Ukraine's grain hostage as, as part of this. But I guess my question is, what is the alternative, right? What is, what is the, the move, even, I mean, if the Ukrainians surrendered right now, okay, I guess that would end the war. Um, it would, you know, obviously lead to, we, we know how the Russians have behaved under territories they've already occupied. And I think that's what Ukrainians would expect in the case of just putting down their guns and letting the Russians take over. Um, you know, it, 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 would they, should they offer just to say, all right, let's just go back to where we were February 23rd. I think that's something that has already been floated. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I just don't see you know, what is Putin going to go for? What is the agreement in the offing here that we are not taking? You know, so I guess it really, the question I keep having is, it seems this is a horrible scenario we're in right now, but it seems to me the the least worst scenario, given what's realistically on offer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, like, it's it's certainly like, um, for for the Ukrainians, um, at least like the surrender doesn't seem to be an option. And I, I would, yes, say the same is true for the United States and its, its allies. It's just, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might be like sort of like an, by way of conclusion um, or to, to take up the, the issue of like what, um, what approach the, the, the left could have. I mean, like, um, I think that you, um, you're someone who's been critical of the Biden administration on like a number of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, you possibly could have joined the Biden administration and decided not to and preferred like, you know, this role to be like a sort of uh, a critic. Um, like, like w- w- what can um, uh, the left like viably bring to this sort of conversation of, you know, a situation I think you and I can both agree is horrible mm-hmm. and, you know, but that we're kind of like stuck in. There's a, there's a kind of like, a, Putin has created this like really terrible situation. Yeah, no, I think well, what we can do and this is part of what I tried to, to talk about in the piece is just f- for the left in the United States, as we think about what a progressive approach to foreign policy means, I think what does solidarity mean? Because I think that is a very key concept for progressives. What does it mean to act in a way that promotes our own security and prosperity, but also, you know, does what we can to promote the security and prosperity of others. Um, I think we need to be very mindful of what we are actually hearing from Ukrainians about what they want, 
especially Ukrainian leftists, if we are taking an internationalist perspective. Um, that's not to say that that is determinative of our policy, but that's something that we need to take into account. And that's something I see not as often as I think I would like from a lot of the folks who are just insisting that we just need to, to, to end this war immediately and, and, and we're doing a bad thing by, by continuing to supply arms. Because um, at least, you know, from what I'm hearing, seems to be a fairly strong consensus, including from Ukrainian leftists, from Ukrainian socialists, from, you know, the Ukrainian progressives, however they define themselves, that they want to defend themselves. They want to be able to, 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 to fight this Russian uh, invasion. And they, more than anyone else, understand the costs of this. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, as, as I also noted in the piece, I've not been shy about criticizing the Biden administration where they've, 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 they've not, I think, lived up to some of their own commitments or to what I would see as a progressive foreign policy. And that is a, is, is a very long list. Um, but having, you know, recognizing where they are doing the right thing while continuing them to, uh, to improve in other areas, I think is a responsible place to be. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what I want to um, pick up because I feel like uh, one uh, key component that uh, you and uh, Senator Sanders have tried to make a part of American yeah. policy is this, this uh, take the idea that like autocracy is a real problem. Uh, and that the um, um, part of the American foreign policy has to be, you know, not the neoconservative view of like, you know, promoting democracy at gunpoint, but making like, you know, concerns for uh, democracy kind of like central. And I, I think it has been a kind of a mark of success that this has become at least, you know, a part of the public rhetoric of the Biden mm -hmm. administration. Uh, and one sees that. Like, yeah, rhetoric being the key word there. <laughs> yeah, well, this, is, this is what I want to get to because this is like, uh, I mean, it is the case that I, I think the sort of like the Sanders critique of foreign policy has been incorporated at some level, as I said, like on a rhetorical level. Yeah. Uh, but um, it does seem like th th there's all sorts of cases where there's been backsliding on the American end. Um, and some of it is being driven by, by this war that, you know, because mm -hmm. America needs oil suddenly, you know, like it's starting to like turn a blind eye to Saudi Arabia. And it looks like there's going to be some sort of reconciliation uh, with um, uh, uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and so like, uh, I want to see that like in the other area in like China, where, you know, on the one hand, I think you and I can both agree that there's like, it's necessary to hold China accountable for its human rights. Mm -hmm. But the anti-China coalition that Biden is, you know, um, creating uh, or the counter China coalition that Biden yeah. is creating is like, you know, it includes like India and is including like turning a blind eye to, you know, the very disturbing backsliding of democracy in India. So like, um, um, yeah, how do you see one? Well, how, do yeah. we, well, how do we balance that? Like, you know, wanting, right. you know, to encourage Biden on, you know, uh, to accept democracy, but then also right. holding him accountable. Right. I mean, that is, I mean, a lot, there's a, some trade-offs here. I think first we just have to recognize that governing involves these kinds of trade-offs. The question is what trade-offs are you making um, and what are you getting? Um, you, you know, you mentioned this, this rapprochement with Mohammed bin Salman. My question is, like, what are you going to get for this? Is yeah. there anything that, that President Biden could potentially come back from this trip from meeting with this murderous, corrupt, <laughs> authoritarian head of state or, you know, putative head of state, crown prince, um, that would justify this. The costs to our own credibility, the cost to a human rights agenda, 
um, the ammunition it will give to adversaries who have insisted all along that our, 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 our rhetoric about human rights is just that, just rhetoric, meaningless. Um, I, again, I haven't seen anyone you know, describe that for me. Um, I, I, I'm really disappointed in it. Um, I think there are a number of places where, the, where this is also true. I mean, listen, you know, this idea that, you know, we're going to go over there and make nice and, and give, you know, MBS some, some treats and favors, and then he's going to turn the crank um, and, you know, oil is going to go back to 250 a gallon. It's not going to happen. No one claims it's going to happen. How, you know, but even if it's only a modest, you know, reduction, and I recognize that matters to folks. I mean, gas prices being this high, I mean, this is very, very tough on folks. I don't diminish that at all. But I think there's a logic here driving this rapprochement and the, and the approach to the Middle East in general that says basically that, you know, the American, you know, you know, working to benefit the American middle class and the American working class basically requires consigning the peoples of the Middle East to a future of repression. Mm-hmm. And I do, I just reject that. You know, that's not to say that we can go in there and wave a magic wand and turn these, you know, and, and kind of free the people. That's a dangerous illusion. We should all understand that after 20 years of the global war on terror. But I, I, I think there are some less blatant trade-offs that can be made to work with imperfect regimes and governments, as you mentioned, you know, India and others, um, to achieve our goals, um, to advance, um, you know, a, a, a genuinely, you know, stable rules-based order that, that creates less suffering rather than more. Um, but, you know, I mean, the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, I think Ukraine is offering, you know, if, if people are saying, well, Ukraine is the reason why they're, you're pursuing this reproach, I think that the writing was on the wall on this for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Ukraine, in my view, has essentially just you know, given them a, a, a good excuse <laughs> to accelerate, um, you know, a kind of shift toward just blatant realpolitik that I saw the signs for fairly early on, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of these was just the decision back, I think it was March 2021, when, you know, they released this, this you know, the Intel report, you know, putting responsibility on Mohammed bin Salman for the, the, the kidnap and murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi, but there will be no sanctions on Mohammed bin Salman himself. Um, okay, and, and now as David Ignatius wrote in a piece a couple of days ago, he's just going to get away with it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, uh, it, I, I mean, uh, this is like a little tangential, but I, I do wanna get your kind of thoughts on this because it just seems like even from the point of view of like uh, partisan democratic politics, like the whole uh, uh, Biden's approach in the Middle East seems very bad because uh, these are regimes that are not just dictatorial themselves, but are like aligned mm-hmm. with the the sort of right wing in American society. Yep. And it's, it does seem like Biden, for you know, a variety of reasons, has decided to like appease these forces. And I just, I, I just don't see the. Uh, um, I think I think there's real costs to that. <laughs> like it's just. Uh... No, I agree. There there are enormous costs. I mean, just talking with, you know, colleagues who work in the Middle East. Um, colleagues and friends who, who who live in that region and who you know are, are democracy activists and human rights activists um I, i'm afraid we you know the united states is is poisoning its relationship with you know the people of this region for another generation mm-hmm. um 
you know, we can have a debate over how engaged we want to be in the region, um, whether, you know, the importance of, of focusing on China and the shift to Asia and all the rhetoric and so on and so forth. But again, the basic logic here is like, well, okay, we're going to support this normalization, quote unquote, under the auspices of these, you know, the so-called Abraham Accords, um, which let's understand what that is. This is just, you know, acquiescing to authoritarianism and repression. Um, whether it's the Palestinians, whether it's the Saudi people, whether it's the, the Emiratis, you know, um, in, you know, don't even have to start talking about the Egyptians and some of these other repressive regimes that we've supported for a long time. Um, but yeah, without without denying that there are trade-offs that that have to be made, I just I, I think the logic here is just it's it's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I I think we can agree on that. So yeah, I, I just uh, um, yeah. Want to sort of um, uh, conclude by you know encouraging everyone to uh, read uh, Matt's piece, which I'll link to uh, with this podcast. Um, but um, I, I think one maybe my key takeaway, and you might have a closing thought on this, is the sort of importance of solidarity, and I think also maybe the importance of sort of like having a little bit of moral clarity in just you know um, uh, realizing the the. Um, enormous uh, crime that Putin has committed. And like, I think, I think that has to be, to me, like the sort of the center of any analysis, but any yeah. thoughts on that as we close? No, I, I agree with all that. And I do want to just circle back you. There was a question you had asked earlier that I, I didn't manage to respond to, which was, you know, in terms of, you know, the right position for progressives um, mm -hmm. as this war goes on. And one thing I, I do think it's worth raising is, you know, I think it is important having, you know, I, I, I laid out what I think is a good progressive position in response to what to, to Ukraine and the Russian invasion. But I also think it's very important, even though I don't currently see, you know, that diplomatic resolution or that negotiated, you know, agreement in the offing right now, as soon as one does become available to, to protect and defend aggressively the space for that, because that will be politically difficult. In Washington, diplomacy is always Difficult, you know. It will always, no matter what it is, um, it will be condemned as appeasement by the usual hawks, and that's something I definitely, I, I definitely do not want to get. It. I think the whole appeasement debate is just extremely silly. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone, you know, there's always some right wing hawk in Washington that is going to call any negotiated agreement a form of appeasement. But I do think it's worth quoting, you know, the patron saint of anti-appeasement himself, Winston Churchill, who said, quote, appeasement has its place in all policy, unquote. The question is, what are you getting for it? That's you right. Know, that's and, right yeah. and, and I think so, again, even though I, I made a crack about Henry Kissinger um, on Twitter that seemed to make a lot of people upset. I mean, in general terms, I, I understand what he was saying. You know, if there is an opportunity to end this war in a way that does not, you know, is not the total defeat of Russia in a way that is is sustainable, I, that is reasonable. And yes, people will call it appeasement. But the question is, is does it end the war in a way that doesn't just start another war a few months down the road? Yeah, no, I, I think that's actually a really good point. And I, I think um, it's something uh, uh, that runs through your piece, but it's, it's like, you know, the left is, you know, uh, it might feel weak to itself, but it's actually stronger in real terms in America than it's been like, right. you know, like in decades um, and, um, and does have like a voice. And so like when the moment comes for negotiation, there will be that like, you know, the usual, foreign policy hawks, you know, we, we can predict who they will be, right. who, will like, who, will, who will like uh, uh, stand against uh, negotiations. And like it is, I, I, I think that, um, uh, that that is the moment to kind of like 
really step up um, and uh, and uh, argue for negotiations as one can currently do in like you know the debate over like Iran and you know yeah. uh, re-entering the accord. I mean, I that's think quite right. That's, that's a major um, point, and I do think that like part of the left being stronger now is that there's uh, more institutions and venues for like you know making the pro-negotiation negotiation arguments. And right. uh, you know, like um, I I don't know. I, I just feel like you know compared to even like 20 years ago, like you know like mainstream venues are much more open to people like you know um, making uh um the, the, the case for a non-military solution right yeah no i, I, I would agree have, with that yeah i think we have to realize that and realize that that, that is like you know like not be yeah um consumed by a sense of our own powerlessness but there's actually like 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 uh uh some openings and some opportunities here yeah i agree totally with that yeah. Okay. Good. So, uh, great. Uh, so the, not much of a debate since I, I think you and I are radical <laughs> on, on, on many of these issues. But are uh, there any are there any movies we can disagree on? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, there's actually um, maybe I'll end this with uh, encouraging listeners. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's a Hindi movie called uh, RRR. Um, okay. It's uh, set in the 1920s about two freedom fighters that battle the British Raj. Uh, it's kind of like I would have described as a Marvel superhero movie. Uh, set against uh, anti-British imperialism. Uh, and I'll just leave Interesting. All right. Great recommendation. <laughs> okay, good, good. So uh, 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 thanks for uh, being on, Matt. All right. Thanks, Lanji. Talk to you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.